Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, in this episode, we've got monsters. Um, more specifically, we have bouts, uh, battles, um, fights, um, quarrels. Skirmishes. Skirmishes <laughs> between monsters and science. And I mean actual science. Um as opposed to the fake kind. Right. This is we're not talking about science fiction here. As awesome as science fiction is, we're talking about actual um uh published scientific studies that deal with uh various fictional monsters. Um so uh we're going to in, in, uh, include such bouts as the Sasquatch versus the werewolf. Um Physicist versus ghost and vampires. Wow, that's that's what I'm going to have to do. That one's kind of a tag team match because I think it's technically like physicists and mathematicians against ghosts and vampires. And then uh, the final bout is going to be Robert Smith uh, versus zombies. We're not talking about the cures, Robert Smith, either. Yeah, different Robert Smith. Although uh, now I'm going to have a cure song playing in my head the whole podcast. Well, that's a a good problem to have. All right, so let's kick it off. First battle, Sasquatch yeah. versus werewolves. Tell me a little about the Sasquatch. You're familiar with the uh, the Bigfoot, the yeah. Stone Gate. Yeah, there are reportings of um, a Sasquatch sighting in North Georgia mountains a, a while back, right? Yeah, there was a, those guys that <laughs> had it in guys. a cooler. Yeah. Like <laughs> the a pictures suit. were pretty hilarious. Yeah, most pictures of uh, Bigfoot are pretty hilarious because they're pretty fake or they're just uh, just abysmal quality. Um and he goes by many names, yeah. old Bigfoot. Again, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti, uh, one of my favorites, the Skunk Ape, if you live in Florida. Yeah, and I noticed you wrote a couple of uh, other ones down here that I've not heard of, and perhaps you listeners haven't heard of. Yeah. Like, uh, how about, I, I, why don't you pronounce them, Robert? Why don't you change <laughs> well, the honors? Well, you've heard of the Wendigo, right? I've not heard of the Wendigo. Oh, man, the Wendigo's awesome. The Wendigo is often tied in like um, sort of like cannibalism myths, and uh, I think it comes out of various uh, Native American uh, traditions. Um, but it is also like an X-Men character and stuff. Uh, I think it was in a Stephen King book. But um, anyway, uh, then there's also the Yehoa, <laughs> the Oma, the Rugaru, and uh, and the Box, B-O-Q-S. So depending on who's uh, describing this guy, uh, he runs anywhere between 7 and 15 feet tall. Um, he's extremely hairy, uh, surprisingly hard to capture on film. And uh, despite having been... Uh, uh, you know, reported for centuries. Um, you know, we haven't managed to catch one and put one in a zoo or anything. And he walks on two legs, right? Yeah. He uh, he can have a, a little bit of a strong odor to him. Yeah, there are a lot of reports of him s- smelling. Like, you generally smell him before you see him. And, uh, yeah, so in this corner, a pretty rough and tumble character. Uh, the Sasquatch. Yeah. In the other corner, we have the werewolf. Now, what comes to mind when you think of a werewolf? I mean, I'm looking at you <laughs> And you're you're kind of growing a beard, so I'm imagining that beard kind of yeah. growing, and then hair sprouting on the right. knuckles. And but um, it would work better if you didn't have blonde hair. Yeah, you don't see very many. You see white werewolves, I guess, but not. I mean, you see them in fiction, not around town. But. I do think a little bit of Chewbacca when I tend to think of werewolves. Yeah, um, I guess. But but that's not really quite what I'm what I'm after. Uh, wh- what do you think of? Well, I mean, it it varies. You have on one. It kind of depends on the budget of the film that you're watching, because werewolves can can sometimes just be like trained wolves, like people who watch True Blood right now have 
been seeing kind of like semi-trained wolves running around as the werewolves. Uh, and then you have sort of the old like Lon Chaney Jr. werewolves where it was like a dude with a bunch of fake hair stuck on his face kind of stuff. That's my favorite. Yeah. That's my favorite kind of werewolf. Yeah. And then sometimes like computers allow us to do something awkward in between that doesn't really work. Um, but yeah, they're a normal man by day. And then what turns them into uh, a wolf? A full moon. Right. They suffer from lycanthropy. Uh, and this was the one, the, the legends for this have been around for like seemingly forever. I mean, you have people turning into wolves as early as uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, one of the earliest known works of literature. And now we have them in Harry Potter. That's right. Yeah. Harry Potter's full of them. You, you can't throw a stick without hitting a werewolf these days. So, uh, so what do you think? Who's going to win between a, in a battle between a Bigfoot and between a, you know, Sasquatch, a Yeti and a werewolf? Well, I think on either end, you have a lot of hairy brawn, but I'm going to give it to Sasquatch just for sheer muscle, muscled strength. And uh, the werewolf, I'm thinking quickness, you know, agile, light on its feet, kind of the, um, what is, what is that famous fighting quote? Sting like a. Yeah. Um, um, fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm thinking of that famous fighting quote, you know, fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, and also... For the, the werewolf. Yeah. And then, of course, the Sasquatch has kind of got this kind of peaceful, uh, you know, thing going for him. Like, people kind of see the, the Bigfoot as a, as, a, as a pacifist and the werewolf as a bloodthirsty killer. Right. So, uh, well, the outcome for this bout, according to Brian Regal, assistant professor of uh, the history of science at Keene University in Union, New Jersey... Sasquatch wins. But he get does. this, he wins through interference from Charles Darwin. Really? How yeah. does Darwin figure into this? Well, um, Regal's argument here is that, um, you know, you had, uh, you know, 1859, Darwin, uh, published, uh, Origin of Species and all okay. that, right? And, uh, the, the big take home from, from all of this that everybody just ran nuts with in the media was the connection between man and ape. All right, uh, and, and you, as we go into in the How Charles Darwin Works uh, article, which you wrote, yeah, which which I wrote, um, there's, um, you know, but like people just really lashed into him with all these like cruel cartoons of like, you know, how dare this man, you know, say that the noble, uh, you know, refined uh, human, this child of God, is in any way, you know, related to these, uh, you know, bestial creatures that wander around naked and hairy, you know, so. Um, it was a pretty shocking I, okay, idea. We can't go any farther because I just have to say it, it bothers me. This whole, you know, progression, this thought of evolution as, uh, you know, leading from directly from uh, an, an ape to to man. And, and of course, we've written a lot about this, and we know that this is not true. They evolve along two divergent lines, right. With some sort of common ancestor. So exactly. Just to clear that up. And and here's the here's the key though. The uh, like the last common ancestor between man and ape. Not too terribly far in the few, in the in the past. I mean, yes, like a long time in the past, like five million years or like, so. Yeah, right? like five million years or so. But the last common ancestor between a man and wolf, guess, guess when that would have would have occurred? Um, all right. It was a here's a hint. It was a hundred million years ago. Now, can you guess what kind of animal it would have been? Um, I'm guessing, Robert, help me out. Tell me. It would me. have been something like an aardvark. It would have been. An aardvark? Yeah. Where did you pull this out of? Uh, there, there was a study a couple of years back. Uh, some, uh, uh, some scientists uh, said that, uh, about a hundred million years ago, that like an, and not just between man and wolves, between like a, a varying number of, uh, mammalian uh, species. But, uh, but yeah, so we're a lot more kin to the, um, to the apes than we are to the wolves. Yes. So, 
so yeah, Darwin's theory uh, gets a lot of traction. It kind of like seeps into people's minds, and suddenly the idea of turning into a wolf is seems a, very far removed. Yeah, it's kind of it's far removed. It's a lot it's sillier. Silly. Yeah, it's 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 kind of silly. Uh, while while the idea this connection between man and ape is a it's a lot more a lot it's still ridiculous, but it's a lot more plausible that a man could turn into an ape, and also. Um, it's kind of troubling. I mean, you see horror stories from the day, like, uh, you know, stuff from H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe dealing with like, you know, either people turning into apes or being murdered by apes or mating with apes. That's the Lovecraft one. Um, Planet of the Apes? No, no, that's, that's, that's <laughs> later. But, but I mean, in a way, that's spun off of the same thing. You know, there's people pondering this connection between, you know, what we, we are and what we think we are and, uh, and our, you know, evolutionary kin. So the takeaway is really, um, you know, science playing a role actually in our fears, you know, to illuminate or to uh, define our, our fears and uh, the things that we don't understand, I guess. Would yeah. You, would you take it in that direction? Yeah. I mean, it, it uh, like the, the, the werewolf thing and the and the Bigfoot thing uh, to a certain extent and also like these other ideas of like wild men in the forest that have been with us forever. Like it's it, they're all ultimately about coming to terms with our own bestial nature and it's kind of like the inner monster, you know. In fact, uh, one fact that I always find really amusing is that the word monstrosity itself uh, comes from the word uh, monstrere. Uh, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but it means to show or illustrate a point. You know, you look back in medieval texts and you see, you know, a lot of thought went into monsters. Like, why does it have the head of this and the head of that? Um, there was a, like, there was, I remember seeing some illustration of like a bird man. He was like, uh, he was like, I want to say it was like, it was supposed to be like Jesus, but with a bird's head with a really long neck. I've not seen that illustration. It, yeah, it's, there were a lot of crazy illustrations back there, but the idea was that like, uh, the, like the, like a really Christ-like individual, a very holy individual. And what was the bird connection? The bird connection is that, um, there's a, there's a huge distance between the heart and the mouth so that any kind of like harsh words that would rise up, they would have longer to travel and you'd have more time to think about them before you, uh, expressed yourself. Interesting. So, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in it and all, but, uh, but yeah, that's an important thing to think about when, when contemplating, um, our relationship with any fictional monster. What does that monster represent? Um, you know, to us and of us. And then you get anthropologists uh, such as Ernestine McHugh, and she's a cultural anthropologist from Rochester. And she says that a lot of people are really disenchanted with everyday life. Um, they long for something that seems kind of magical. Yeah. Like she points out that even Halloween, which I mean, I'm still excited about, uh, you know, it's coming up here around the, the corner. Uh, but she points out that it's like a day for kids now. There's nothing scary about Halloween. And, uh, and so Bigfoot, for a lot of people, is just one thing you could you could sort of hold on to. You know, it hasn't no one can say you've completely, you know, you can't say there are no Bigfoots, like big, big feet. No, Bigfoots out there, <laughs> um, you know, you know, completely. Someone could always make the case. Well, you know, they're hiding here or there and nobody's proved, you know, that they exist either. Like, I remember when that thing with the uh, the guys in the Georgia mountains with a, with a cooler with a monkey suit in it, when that first hit, um I, that the news of it uh, hit, I, I felt this like real excitement in, in, you know, rise up in me. You know, and I'm like, oh my goodness, or, or is this going to be the day that we actually find out there's a such thing as Bigfoot? And then on the other hand, I also felt like this fear. It's like, what, what if it, it you know, what if it turns out that it does exist? That'll be like this one remaining mystery of the world that we've managed to snuff away forever. You know? I don't know. I think the skeptics' argument is no way. We we got nothing to to go on here. So. I mean, yeah. Sasquatch or, or Bigfoot is a, is a pretty 
interesting and fun idea to play with, but. Yeah, we really, we really don't have much. Uh, but apparently the groups that are really into them have been growing like a wildfire. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to give this victory to Sasquatch. Sasquatch yes. over the werewolf by means of Charles Darwin. Yeah. Sasquatch and science uh, take the win. Sorry, werewolves. All right. So on to bout two. We have uh, ding, ding, ding. physicists and mathematicians taking on ghosts and vampires. Uh, tell me what you think of when you, you think of ghosts. Um, Casper. Casper. Okay. <laughs> Casper the friendly ghost. Uh, poltergeist. Yeah. What else? Well, of course, uh, Patrick Swayze. Oh, right. Patrick Swayze Patrick and Demi Moore right. and, uh, that whole scene where they're, you know, sculpting that piece. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh, and Jacob Marley. Jacob Marley's a famous guy. Oh, right, right, right. And, uh, in a lot of these cases, you know, you also think of floating, uh, you know, yes. definitely moving around and often going through walls. Sure. A favorite trick among ghosts. Yes. And vampires, of course. Yeah, they like to suck your blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what they're renowned for. They're pretty, uh, pretty strong. I gotta, I gotta say, from a, a purely practical point of view, that seems, I mean, sucking blood. I mean, it's it's pretty nutrient rich. You yeah. could you could do less intelligent things as a uh, fantastic being. Yeah, take the leech for instance, who, which we covered uh, recently in a podcast. We did. Those guys get along just fine on the blood, um, but they're not as sexy as uh, the vampires that uh, fill our television screens these days. Yeah, so. I have. So, have you seen any of this True Blood or, oh, or yeah. read that fictional? No, I haven't read it, but I've watched it. Yeah. Oh right. Well, and then there's the the whole series, the Twilight series. Have you seen that? Um, or? I have. I have watched them. Uh, <laughs> nice. I got that. With, uh, I got you to admit that on the podcast. Yeah. Well, with I watched them with a riff track going, so it was like they were they were being spoofed a little. But I see. But yeah. So let's for the purposes of this, let's imagine a physicist and a mathematician in one corner, and in the other corner. Um, Edward the vampire from uh, Twilight and Patrick Swayze the ghost. Okay. All right. Who's going to win? Which team? Yeah, I'm going to go with the physicists and mathematicians. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I they- mean, I'm not really thinking of these guys as particularly skilled in hand-to-hand combat. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that they're, you know, they have their black belt by any means. But the wits, the wits will outsmart yeah. these beings. And and here's the here's the thing the um uh, the, the paper in question, uh, which is cinema fiction versus physical reality. Yeah, let's back this up with scientific research. Why yeah. don't we? Yeah, it, it comes from our two, um, you know, our, uh, people in the physicist corner being, uh, Sohong Gandhi and his mentor and professor, uh, Kostas Ephthemoi. Uh, uh, yeah, I think he sounds like a Greek guy. Yeah, and they're from, well, they may be Greek, but they're hanging out in Florida at the University of Central Florida. Uh, well, the, the professor being Greek. Yeah. I think the other one was not necessarily Greek. Sohong. Yes. Anyway, that's it. We're, we're diverging. <laughs> okay. From so the anyway, here. these are the guys that that wrote the study. Right. And like right out of the gate, their first uh, um, their first argument pretty much takes the ghost out of the equation, because they basically say that all right, so a ghost by its very nature is not supposed to take up uh, space. It has no mass, right? Um, but to move forward, a ghost would have to be capable of producing force downward. Um, you know, in this case, uh, through feet or something. You know. Um, but to go through a wall, a ghost would have to be immaterial. See? So it's like you can't have it both ways. Either, either the ghost takes, uh, you know, has mass and takes up space and can move, or it's immaterial and can go through walls. Mm-hmm. So their argument is that ghosts, as typically portrayed in cinema, just cannot happen. So it'd be either, so in this fictional battle, which I like to think is taking place inside a boxing or wrestling ring, uh, Patrick Swayze would either be you know, moving through the ring and through the ropes 
or he'll just be standing there. Like, you know, make up Okay, your mind. so we've taken, well, I mean, we've only knocked out ghosts in one regard in that we've, we've knocked out a, a method of locomotion. Is that true? Pretty much. Yeah. You know, a method of moving around the world. Right. Well, I think basically they're saying the ghost could move or the ghost could go through walls, but he can't have it both ways. Okay. Yeah. So, and you could argue, well, that doesn't really say that ghosts don't exist. And well, they're not really making that argument. They're just saying that ghosts, as betrayed, they, they can't have it both ways from a physics standpoint. All right. Sorry, ghosts. <laughs> what about vampires? How are they faring in this whole battle? Well, vamp- for vampires, they come down to, um, they, they, they reduce it to a, a pretty simple argument. Like, what happens when you get bit by a vampire in some, in some versions of the myth? I turn into a vampire, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and it, it's a little more complicated in some versions, but they're going with or like I become the, a half vampire. Do I become a half vampire? No, no, no. For, <laughs> let's just say you become a vampire. Okay. And again, this is. In, Call me vampire. Yeah. yeah. You, you get bit by a vampire, you become a vampire. And a lot of people say that doesn't make sense just from a, a mathematics standpoint. Why not? Well, because they deplete their food supply too rapidly, right? And they'd eventually just starve to death because there wouldn't be anything left to eat or to drain. Uh, and it's the, it's something called the mathematical principle of geometric progression. I see. Yeah, and they say say that uh, it would play out about like this: two point two point five years um, after like a one vampire arrives on the scene, all of humanity would be wiped out. Those are some hungry vampires. Yeah, and it it, get, it breaks down to like, um, yeah, it's like it's like you have a vampire feed once a month, and then you know there are two more vampires. It's it's, it's just it it just gets it's exponential. Uh, it just gets exponential growth. And, uh, and yeah, so it, it doesn't. It reminds me of this, uh, question of the day that I just edited on, uh, the Malthusian premise. There's an English economist named Thomas Malthus, uh, who was active in the 19th century and has since, um, since died. Unless he's a vampire, in which case he's still living. Oh, um, what a twist. <laughs> no, but, uh, Malthus was saying that his, he had this premise in which it was pretty simple. He stated that, um, Humanity at its current rate of growth mm-hmm. would outstrip the food supply because while humanity, while humans grow uh, in a exponential fashion, the rate of food production only grows linearly. Hmm. Anyway, a little bit of a tangent, but kind of on the same thread. Well, it's worth uh, pointing out that as as uh, as much as our uh, physicist and mathematician here may uh, may celebrate this uh, perceived victory over the vampire, um, not every version of the vampire myth entails people coming back to life. Like some um, some versions of it. Involve like you have to drink the blood of the vampire to become the vampire. And then there are a whole bunch of like really crazy vampire myths out there that Hollywood ignores because they're too awesome. Uh, <laughs> like seriously, look up in Vucci and uh, it's like one of those just crazy, awesome uh, Native American, I think, uh, uh, vampire myths where it's like a giant blood bladder that lives in a cave underwater and like sends out minions to collect people. It's crazy stuff. But uh, and then and then I think there have been uh, vampire movies and, and works of fiction that explore the idea that vampires would have to uh, discipline themselves in order uh, to keep their food supply intact. Yeah, actually, I mean, you wouldn't think that vampires would be dumb beasts, so they would have some mechanism of, you know, kin selection, yeah. <laughs> keeping themselves alive, survival of the fittest. But still, I guess when you come down to it, science like firmly wallops both both ghosts and vampires. Would you say? Yes, it does. Victory, right. science. Ding so ding. I think the score is scientists two. Monster zero. Yeah. All right, let's take on our final battle. Yeah, and this one is going to involve zombies. So what comes to mind when uh, when someone mentions zombies? Most recently, the the British film. Uh, what is it? Sean. Oh, Sean of the Dead. Yeah. Sean of the Dead. Yeah, that one. 
Yeah, that's a that's a fun zombie film that features uh, the more classic slow zombies. Slow I see. Moving, the I didn't, I didn't know. I, well, uh, illuminate us, uh, me and listeners, on the different kinds of zombies out there. Well, basically, I mean, you... There are slow zombies and there are fast zombies? Basically, There's yeah. There's a big dichotomy there? It, it is. And some people get really um, bent out of shape over it, including Simon Pegg, uh, star of uh, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Um, because you had the classic sort of George Romero, um, you know, version of the zombie that shambles along and it's, you know, it's just like, you know, and it, you know, and they're generally, generally the threat is that there are just lots and lots of them. And if you, you'll, and if you don't stay on your feet and, you know, think, then, uh, suddenly you'll find yourself in a situation where you can't escape them. Uh, but along the way, you ended up getting some like fast zombie, um, um, movies, uh, come into play. Like, uh, I think, uh, yeah, Return of the Living Dead, I think, had fast zombies. Uh, the Reanimator movies had fast zombies. And then most notably, 28 Days Later, the uh, which is a big uh, hit out of Britain, and that one had fast zombies. Um, yeah, and so people get get really, really bent out of shape over it because people are like, the zombies should never be fast. And and the, the zombies in 28 Days Later aren't technically zombies. They're actually in, people infected with the disease and... But but anyway, for for all intents and purposes, in this podcast, we're talking about slow zombies. All yeah, right. I'm with that. Let's stay true to the uh, the old stereotype. Yeah. So, um, who, it, we had, who do we have? Let's set it up. Yeah, we have uh, Robert Smith, and this is the interesting. It's like I say, it's not the guy with uh, uh, that you met that instantly comes to mind. The uh, the lead singer of uh, the Cure. Yeah. Um, did so, you like the Cure when you were younger, or do you like the Cure now? I have to ask. I didn't. I didn't. Wasn't really into the Cure when I was younger, but I I, I dig some Cure here and there now. You know. Yeah. But uh, but this guy is uh, a Canadian. A researcher and his name is Robert Smith question mark like his legal last name is Smith question mark <laughs> so great yeah. and and there are I would num- like to be louder milk exclamation point you should go for it <laughs> and this guy's just one of several researchers that, that put out this study uh, called when zombies attack exclamation point colon mathematical modeling of an outbreak of zombie infection and that was, uh, was published in infectious disease modeling research progress all right so it's yeah. definitely one of the top tier academic journals out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and this comes down to like we're talking with the vampires. What happens when you get bit by a zombie? In most films, you turn into a zombie. Right. Right. Like generally within you know thirty minutes of screen time. Or I'm less. sorry, guys. I'm not as much of a, a horror well, that, aficionado as Robert is. I know. Well, that's why it's fun to, to quiz you on these things because um, you know. Uh, but uh, but yeah. So most to films poke fun at me. Not yeah, to that's poke cool. Fun. That's fine. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's just. I mean, I, I enjoy hearing like a more of a mainstream, um, <laughs> like less. Let's just keep going with the zombies. <laughs> okay. So, um, so yeah, the, the idea is that zombies bite you, you turn into a zombie. Yes. And it's kind of like with the vampire thing. It's like, how soon would this situation get way out of control? So these guys approached it from an infectious disease modeling standpoint. They said, all right, let's assume, you know, X, Y, and Z about a zombie outbreak. And then let's do the math. What would happen? And uh, and what what did they find? We're kind of doomed. Yeah. When zombies attack, so if you were to predict uh, the scenario of of a true zombie attack, it pretty much means a rapid collapse of civilization as we know it. Yep. Cities yeah. would fall in mere days. Yeah, unless we hit them hard and hit them often, and that is an actual quote, I believe, from the paper. <laughs> yeah, they um they they broke it down into a few different possible outcomes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's talk let's about run this. through them. Uh, the first one uh, they laid out was uh, latent infection. And in this, humans have about a week before uh, being wiped out by zombies. 
And the next step would be uh, quarantine. And so even if they were to be lucky enough to sequester the infected away from the general population, it's going to do not a whole heck of a lot to stop the outbreak. So humans only have eight days to live. Whoa. That's a dire scenario. <laughs> and then uh, the next uh, scenario they, they uh, came up with was uh, one that entailed uh, a cure. Like if we were able to develop a cure for uh, zombie hood, then, uh, then humans hood. would survive, but only barely. And this is interesting because I was just talking to uh, a buddy of mine about the latest uh, uh, zombie game to come out on all the systems, or at least on the, the 360 uh uh, it, it's, I forget what it's called, but uh, anyway, it, it entails uh, a cure for zombies. So it's like a zom- post-apocalyptic zombie thing, but then there's also a cure, but you have to take it every day to keep from turning into a zombie. Yeah, and we all know how effective cures that people have to take every day are. Not very. Well. Well, I mean, no, that is a problem. You prescribe a therapy that is, and it's it's troublesome. Yeah, well, if you if you get uh, if you have a a limb transplant or any kind of a transplant, you have to take medication for the rest of your life. Yeah, I'm just saying that it can be tricky for people to actually follow the prescribed yeah. therapy. And if it's and you run into problems, and if it's in a horror movie or a horror game, you know it's not going to go right. You're going to reach a situation where it's like, oh my goodness, I forgot my pills. I'm turning into a zombie. Right. Um, some so, people have that problem in real life. Um, so what's the what's the final uh, prediction? The, the final scenario is eradication. So we like this one the most, at least as non-zombies do, and uh, that entails a four pinpointed attacks spread over ten days, and all the zombies are destroyed. Humans prevail. Robert Smith prevails. But that's a hit them hard and hit them often, hit them early, kind of a situation. Right. So you guys should definitely keep this in mind. Uh, the next time you get wind of a zombie attack uh, in your neighborhood. Yeah. Act fast. Don't think. So sadly, science uh, takes a dive on that uh, particular fight, and uh, and uh, zombies uh, prevail. Well, except with the eradication. But in three out of the four scenarios, yeah. zombies do prevail. That um, I'm sorry, who are they? Oh, Robert Smith. Yeah. Yes. The scenarios and that Robert, Robert Smith. Smith and company. Yes. Hey, what do you got? You got any listener mail going on? Uh, this uh, little bit of uh, listener mail comes from Christopher, and Christopher writes. In the interest of aiding you in your systematic research, I'm writing to tell you that my cat, Mono, and there's a note here, not named after a disease, as most people initially assume, think mono versus stereo. Uh Uh-huh. Not mononucleosis, as in the kissing disease. That would be, that that could be a good cat. Um, Anyway, um, uh, Christopher uh, says that uh, mono also meeps. That's, you know, we were talking about when a a cat makes the meep. Kind of annoying. Or the kind of... What podcast was that in again? Uh, Scientific Method, I think. Okay. Um, Anyway, Christopher says, However, uh, we've always referred to this croaking sound as the, quote, dusty skeleton cat noise, unquote. He does it when hungry, when he wants to be picked up, and at the mockingbirds that dive bomb him in our yard. But he gets his uh, grisly revenge on them every now and then, uh, which means he eats them. Um, I hope this helps your research study. <laughs> that translation. <laughs> I hope this helps your research study. Thanks for the podcast, and hello to Allison. <laughs> hey, Christopher. Thanks for writing. Yeah, so I think that wraps it up. But if you guys want to read more about Bigfoot and all of his crazy friends, you should check out HowStuffWorks.com, because we have a lot of articles on um, all of these creatures. Yeah, we have How Bigfoot Works by Tom Harris. We have How Werewolves Work by Tracy B. Wilson. Ah, oh, that's a good one. We I have, would like to read Tracy's on werewolves. Well, she also wrote how ghosts work and uh, how zombies work as well. And uh, I would call Tracy a skeptic too. 
Yeah. A skeptic with an appreciation for, um, you know, the fantastic, too. Yeah, well, skeptic skepticism comes from a good place. Yeah, agreed. It's not the same. It's very different from cynicism. So I don't want to talk to anybody who's cynical about zombies. Just skeptic. Yeah. Just skeptical. skeptical. Just skeptical. All right. So check out the site or uh, hang out with us on Facebook or on Twitter. On Facebook, we're Stuff from the Science Lab. On Twitter, we're Lab Stuff. So that's all we got for you guys. Thanks for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.